outliers. Welcome to another edition of Cheat Sheet, where each week we compress six plus hours of research and interviews into three big ideas that you can read in just five minutes. This week, we're profiling Justin Mayers, who has built three direct-to-consumer brands in Kettle & Fire, Perfect Keto, and Shirley Wine, which is a non-alcoholic wine, that have each reached tens of millions of dollars in revenue, all by finding and owning emerging health and wellness trends. And we'll get into this, but the entire point of this newsletter, I'll just read you the title really quickly, is On Spotting and Owning Trends, Wedge versus Ramp Shape Businesses and Making Every Dollar Count. But the big point where we're going to spend a lot of time today is how Justin spots trends and his process. He didn't necessarily articulate this process. We talked through a bunch of points of it during the interview. And so this is one of the things I really enjoy about doing the cheat sheet is it gives me a chance to try to think of two things. One is what are the three big ideas that I want to take away from the week's interviews? And then the second is how can I compress those down, distill those down so we can all take them away, store them in our brains, be able to take them forward and be able to use them. So the three big ideas we're going to break down this week is how to spot trends and build businesses to own them. The difference between wedge versus ramp shape businesses. This is a little bit of a visual concept, so it's going to be helpful if you can pull up the newsletter when we discuss this second piece, which is a concept, but it's basically all about how tightly coupled a business's revenue is from their expenses and what sort of a shape of business growth and profitability that creates. It's the second point. And then the third point is a reminder, and it's why it pays to bring on a head of finance early, or maybe said another way, why finance is strategic and why every entrepreneur, especially those building cash flow management style businesses, we'll talk about what that is in this interview, but why anyone building those businesses needs to pay very close attention to the finances and that finance is actually a very strategic function. We're going to talk about how Justin learned that lesson. So starting with number one, it's the framework and it's how to spot trends and build businesses to own them. One of the reasons I love studying serial entrepreneurs and in the newsletter, I linked to a couple of previous interviews, um, but I interviewed the CEO of Yield Street that was a serial entrepreneur that had, I thought, I think a very interesting framework for the types of businesses that he founded. So I link there. And then another interview that if you're interested in serial entrepreneurs, you might really like is Marshall Haas. He is the founder of Shepherd, which does kind of outsourced hiring in the Philippines. He's also the founder of Peel, which makes very thin iPhone, I think actually any smartphone case. But he has another framework around how he founds businesses and builds them. So if you're interested, go into the newsletter, click in both those links and explore those interviews. One of the reasons I love studying them is because they have very clear frameworks that drive the types of businesses they found. But I've never met anyone with as highly refined a framework as Justin Mayers. Since 2015, he's launched Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto and Shirley Wine, all of which are DTC or direct to consumer businesses built around an emerging trend with the strategic goal of building the brand that owns that trend. And we'll come back to this point, but when I say the brand that owns that trend, you know, what I'm thinking of is something like Oatly, that oat milk is obviously a very big category. And yet in almost any category, you can think of one brand that is synonymous with the category that people use to talk about the category. And the, my favorite term for talking about those sorts of brands are tiebreaker brands. So it's, you know, when you're in a store and you're looking at three or four different brands, which one are you going to default to most of the time? Um, but the other way, and I think it's just the approach that Justin takes is he wants to build the brand that's able to own that trend for the customers they have in that space. So here's how he does it. Uh, and I break this down in just four simple steps. 
you know, this is one of the challenges of writing this newsletter. I could expand on these much more than I have, but I'm trying to capture the kind of the big idea and then a couple of nuanced points under each of these. So the first step is he recognizes when trends are forming. Somewhat obvious, but if you're going to build businesses around trends, you need to have a framework or a point of view or kind of a philosophy about how you spot those trends. You know, with the advent of Google Trends, we can all now see search trends emerge and grow in real life like never before. But there's also the good old fashioned way. Justin Mayers decided to launch Kettle and Fire after he kept hearing people at his CrossFit gym talking about how they were using bone broth for recovery. He hated cooking, so making bone broth from scratch was out of the question. And no matter where he looked, he couldn't find any organic travel size, high quality bone broth. So he knew there was a a market, even if just a small one, and B, no products to serve it. And we'll go into this a little bit later on. But as I was trying to think of how to talk about spotting trends, it's not clear to me that there's any reliable framework, except either A, observing kind of what people are doing at large, which I think something like Google Trends seems really interesting for, although they tend to kind of have trends be viewable by day as opposed to by 30 days or by 90 days. But I think the other way that is probably very relatable is we all have moments in in time in our lives where something just continues to come up again and again and again. And it's something that we don't hear many people talking about, you know, where we maybe have some sort of a unique circle of competence or a circle of people around us that's just really thinking about this thing. And so my guess would be that we all have certain trends that we see early before other people. And I think the key here is to try to think about what trends you might be seeing. And then as you're seeing something pop up again and again and again, think about what that means. And maybe that raises your level of suspicion or your level of curiosity about that topic to see if this might be an interesting business to build or just something to learn about. So that's number one. Number two, he moves quickly to test and gather data. Once Justin decided to launch Kettle and Fire, he wasted no time launching a bare bones product. Within two weeks, they had a simple website up and were selling online. In their first month, they did $20,000 in sales. And, you know, I think this is a really important point. Trends are something that I think there's kind of two parallels that are a little bit paradoxical. On the one hand, they play out over very long periods of time. So even thinking about something like bone broth, you know, here we are in 2022. I see bone broth continuing to gain in popularity. I find it at my local shops. So we're seven years in, maybe even further into this trend and it's still growing. And yet with trends, if they're emerging and they're early, you want to try to test them and gather data and see if this is something that a business could be built around this as quickly as possible. In Justin's view, if you've truly found a trend that will create a new market and there are no products, you should be able to find out whether you're right fairly quickly. New trends create captive markets that are starved for great products. And I think this is just a fascinating observation. Like, why are you able to ship a bare bones product and be able to get data really quickly? Or in, you know, in Justin's case with Kettle and Fire, do 20,000 in sales in your first month, which is way over what they expected the business would ever be able to generate when they started in any given month. And I think the key is, what is a trend? It's something new that people are beginning to like, people are beginning to look for, people are beginning to desire, that literally there are no products. And so it's a brand new market that's been created. It's effectively starved for oxygen. There's no products in there for people to be able to buy. And so you should be able to quickly test and gather data. Number three, he creates the tiebreaker brand in the space. Once Justin has found a trend and launched a product that has real traction, likely despite itself, just meaning it's a very bare bones kind of V1 product, he begins building a moat. Trends create passionate customers who shop by vibe, looking for the company and product that speaks to them, which is why brand is everything in the space. From the name of the company to the look and feel of your packaging to the way you speak to customers, every detail counts. Your goal is to build the Oatly or Bulletproof of your space. 
face the brand that your entire industry is known by. Number four, he reinvests to stay ahead of the competition. And I think this is really interesting for any entrepreneurs, people that have studied a lot of businesses or how businesses have been built over time. You know, a key thing I've been thinking about is just reinvestment. And it's something that Justin brought up in the interview. And we'll talk about it a little bit in a second. But just this idea that when you see a trend play out, typically there are some first movers, but a lot of people will notice a trend. And so what trends create over time is a lot of competition, but it's relatively low quality competition. And so if you're, I would say, smarter, you have the longest time perspective in the room or in your new industry, then you want to reinvest because if you're one of the companies that doesn't, that's just literally extracting profits from the business and not reinvesting, you're going to ultimately go out of business because the best customer value proposition, the best product is always what's going to win. And so I think this reinvestment idea is, is really key. So he reinvests to stay ahead of the competition as Justin scales his businesses. He never stops reinvesting in them as trends grow and mature. They inevitably bring a lot of competition from other motivated entrepreneurs and incumbents that want to slice the space. You know, just really quickly, when I say incumbents, what do I mean? Well, one of the things that Justin and I talked about in the interview that I thought was interesting is here we are again, seven years into the founding of Kettle and Fire. And, you know, now if you go to Whole Foods, you can find generic Whole Foods brand bone broth that I think is in many ways trying to compete head to head with what they're doing. You know, they have these kind of individual serving sizes you can grab. And so incumbents, not only will other motivated entrepreneurs, but incumbents will notice a new niche or a new trend is playing out and they will always try, you know, they're typically a, a last mover, but they will always try and they will typically be successful to some degree to be able to snatch up a portion of that market. And so it's important just to think about that spectrum of competition. If you're right and you're early, you'll be ahead of the pack. But the only way to stay there is to continue investing today so that you can offer the best product tomorrow. As Justin said, we've spent a lot of time not sitting fat and happy on money that we're making, but reinvesting it into the business, making a better product, making better packaging, getting better distribution. And some of what this means too, just to be super frank, is also optimizing the business. You should be trying to lower costs. You should be try trying to improve efficiency. You should be starting to see economies of scale. And so when we say reinvesting, I think it's really taking a holistic 360 degree approach just to make sure that you're always able to offer the best product to customers in the market. So that's the framework. And just really quickly to kind of go back and recap that. He recognizes when trends are forming. That's number one. He moves quickly to test and gather data. That's number two. He creates the tiebreaker brand in the space. That's number three. And he reinvests to stay ahead of the competition. Okay, moving on. And the second thing is a little bit of a tangent, but it's all going to come together at the end. So the second piece is a concept and it's wedge versus ramp shaped businesses. And again, it's going to be helpful if you can pull up the newsletter because I've drawn very crudely two charts that kind of describe what I'm thinking about when I say a wedge shaped business versus a ramp shaped business. But really quickly to try to describe it, you know, effectively a wedge shaped business is something like what Justin is building. So it's typically a very thin margin business. It requires a lot of capital to start, requires a lot of expenses to run and expenses and revenue are pretty tightly coupled. So if you think about how that plots out on a typical stock chart, so you've got your X axis and your Y axis and you're starting to see the lines go up and to the right. I think what ends up happening is it looks literally like a door wedge where those two things separate over time 
time, but they don't separate all that much. And it takes actually a lot of effort with one of these businesses to A, get it big and to be able to grow it quickly. And then B, to be able to actually deliver really attractive profits at the end of the day. So that's a wedge-shaped business. On the other hand is a ramp-shaped business. And this is something that's come up a number of times on the show. You know, a show we did recently with Nicholas Cole, who's the author of Snow Leopard. One of the things he talked about in his interview is that he used to have wedge-shaped businesses. So he used to have a consulting business where he would basically largely bill clients by time or by project. You're tightly coupling revenue and expenses because you're just never going to be able to separate those two very much in that business. And what he ended up moving to are ramp shape businesses. So they're things like newsletters, online courses, books, things where effectively the, the cost to create it is relatively fixed and doesn't scale very much. Or if it does scale, it scales linearly while revenue can literally ramp. And so it can completely take off from expenses over time. A little bit long-winded, but that's kind of the brief overview. One ironclad law of business is that there are really just two shapes of businesses you can build. Wedge-shaped businesses require a lot of capital to run and scale. Their revenue and expenses are very tightly coupled. Selling more units always requires additional investment and or expenses. As a result, margins are thin, revenue can only grow linearly, and profits are generated by quote-unquote growing the wedge between top-line revenue and bottom-line expenses. And we're going to thread this needle, but if you just were to ask yourself, well, okay, that's great. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that's really important with wedge-shaped businesses is that you're being very mindful of every dollar that you're spending. You have to be very mindful of that bottom line expense because it's a lot of it is your choices that will determine the size of that wedge. Okay, so let's talk about ramp-shaped businesses. Ramp-shaped businesses don't require much capital to run and scale. Their revenue and expenses are not tightly coupled. Selling more units requires very little, if any, new capital or expenses. As a result, margins are large, revenue can scale infinitely, and profits generated by quote-unquote scaling the ramp between top-line revenue, which can scale infinitely, and bottom-line expenses, which only scales linearly. Wedge-shaped businesses are often brutal to run because growth is hard-fought and profits are hard-won. What's remarkable about Justin Mayers is how successful he's been at scaling wedge-shaped businesses. As all direct-to-consumer goods, especially food and wine, are wedge-shaped businesses by nature. So what's his secret? Well, he understands that his businesses are wedge-shaped and focuses on cash flow management. This is something that came up literally in the interviews. He described these sorts of businesses as cash flow management businesses. And I didn't ask him the follow-up question of what that meant, which I probably should have done in the interview, but I've thought about it a lot since. And I think the key is that he's ensuring that every expense is scrutinized and made to compete dollar for dollar against every other expense to ensure that they're spending as strategically as possible. And he pays close attention to the size of the web between revenue and expenses in each of his businesses as he treats finance strategically knowing that because every dollar is precious that each has to be put to its highest and best use to grow the business over time. So again, that's just a reiteration of really at the end of the day, I think there are two types of businesses that you can build. There are businesses that don't require a lot of capital where expenses can scale linearly. Revenue can go off the chart, literally create a ramp and up into the right hockey stick and scale infinitely. Those are amazing businesses. Not every business looks like that. In fact, the vast majority of businesses don't. So the vast majority of businesses are these wedge-shaped businesses. And I think it's just interesting to think about what that means to kind of think philosophically about those two businesses. Hopefully you find it helpful as well too. It brings us to the third big idea. And this one's just a reminder, but it's going to be a story that came up in the interview that I just literally have thought about so many times <laughs> since we recorded. I'm not going to spoil it. I'll go into it in a second. So this reminder is why it pays to bring on a head of finance early. One of my favorite moments from our conversation with Justin Mears 
was this story about how Justin didn't used to see finance as important or strategic until one day an advisor dug into his company's books and found $800,000. That's right, almost a million dollars in missing revenue that Justin didn't know was missing. So here's a quote from Justin from the interview. There was a long period of time, multiple years, where I didn't think a finance team was important. So we didn't have a finance team. We didn't do any cash projections. We didn't know our numbers that well. We didn't have billing collections. We didn't have anything. And this is me now kind of jumping in. This is true for most startups and most early stage companies. And that's why I wanted to share this as I think just, you know, seeing this kind of topic through Justin's lens in in his story, I think should be really eye-opening for a lot of people that are building early stage businesses. Okay, back to Justin's quote. Luckily, I finally had an advisor knock some sense into me. He had a bookkeeping team that he knew well dig into our books, and I was like, fine, whatever. We can do this. I don't think this is necessary. I think this is stupid. It's a waste of time. Finally, we got on the phone, and he's like, so you realize that you have $800,000 that different customers owe you that they haven't paid, and yet you've already sent them product. We were a tiny company at this point, and I was like, I didn't. I had no idea. Collections were a thing I hadn't even been thinking about at all. And so I think the takeaways from this are kind of twofold. I think one, obviously, we start off this uh, quote from Justin with talking about that, you know, finance was an important function and didn't really use it to do any projections, do any mapping, really understand what was going on in the business. And then literally by the end, realizing just because an advisor, you know, thank God to this advisor who went through his his books and ended up finding this uh you know, information, but he found $800,000. So they had already sent the product to these customers. They had invoiced them. The customers were delinquent and hadn't paid and they effectively just gave up. And this is also common. I've seen this happen with a lot of companies. And so this isn't something that's special or unique, but I think here, Justin's talking really openly about it, which I really appreciate because I think a lot of people can relate. And, you know, it's just eye-opening. Like ultimately at the end of the day, if you're an early stage company, every dollar matters. And so imagine, I think for most founders out there, imagine if you had $800,000 that you had could get access to relatively easily that you wouldn't have otherwise, uh, you know, you would absolutely do everything it takes to be able to do that. And so what does it take to do that? Well, it just takes treating finance as important and trying to bring in someone that can help you scrutinize and think about all of the funds that you're investing, which anytime you whether it's, yes, if you're doing R&D or investing, you're also investing in G Suite. If you use G Suite, you're investing in Front App. If you use Front App, you're investing in Slack. These are all things that there are alternates for. And so every dollar that you spend should be thought about strategically. Okay, I'll get off that uh, you know kind of pedestal there. What's remarkable is that in my experience, this isn't uncommon. I've seen many companies with great products and growing sales implode because they didn't treat finance as a strategic function early on. And this is not hyperbole. I've literally witnessed, and these are typically capital intensive businesses, but I've literally witnessed businesses that are valued at tens, even hundred plus millions of dollars who just literally, because they ran out of money, because they didn't know they weren't doing enough projections. They weren't doing enough planning. And unfortunately in business, if you have no money, you go out of business. And so it's incredibly important that you treat finance as strategic. Here's Justin's perspective on why finance is so important. So this is his perspective, you know, now. So he reflected on, you know, what this previous experience was. Here's him talking about how he thinks about it now. It's everything. How do you make budgets? How do you make investment decisions? How do you decide where to allocate resources across the company? It's running scenario analyses. For us, margin improvement is a big thing. How do we make the decision between investing in XSource for organic carrots versus investing in an organic carrot mash blend from another supplier? So, you know, just a simple supplier trade-off is ultimately at the end of the day, a financial decision because the biggest component of it is obviously 
product and how it will impact product quality and the promise you make to customers, but also how it's going to impact your bottom line. You know, the expenses and, and that gap, that wedge between your revenue and your expenses. You just have this matrix of decisions that you make every day, every week, every year as part of a company. I think finance gives you the tools and the ability to actually make those decisions in a way that's intelligent versus just guessing. So again, you know, this is me jumping in. What does that mean? I think it, having a finance person in the room, I've witnessed this before. I saw this at Square, Square transition from a very early stage company into a company that was getting ready to go public. Rigor is really important. And rigor is something that, you know, generally... People don't enjoy, people don't want in the earliest stages, but I think especially as you scale, especially as the stakes get higher, rigor is really, really, really important. Okay, back to Justin's quote. And for so long, we were just guessing. We didn't have a rigorous plan. We didn't have a rigorous model we were operating off. We didn't have any rigor around how we were making decisions. I think that finance really provides that strategic lens and that way of thinking about where and how you should invest your limited resources. I hope that's been helpful. If you're interested in listening to the long form interviews that we covered this week that we compressed into this cheat sheet, it's two episodes. It's episode number 143, which is a 20 minute playbook. It's Kettle and Fire's Justin Mayer's on identifying trends, five minute mini workouts, six to do's per day, favorite books and more. You can find that at outlieracademy.com slash 143. And it's episode 144, which was all on Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto and Shirley Wine about spotting trends and building direct to consumer businesses to own them. With Justin Mayer's Serial Entrepreneur, you can find that at outlieracademy.com slash 144. And again, if you're interested in receiving the newsletter version of this, you'll get it for free in your inbox every single week. You can sign up at cheatsheetnewsletter.com. Thank you so much.